When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute here for this week's Democracy Sausage, coming to you as always from the ANU's studio at the Crawford School of Public Policy and with support of the fabulous School of Politics and International Relations. Well, I'm happy to say my prediction of a democratic win in the 2020 election, as made many times on this podcast, has turned out to be correct, as did, largely speaking, the logic underpinning it. My assessment was that Donald Trump was the worst president in modern US history and had done little to expand his base. Now, it's true that he did secure more than 70 million votes in this election, so numerically he did expand his base, I guess you could say. But let me make a couple of points on that. One, unlike 2016, he was a sitting president, not a mere untried novice outsider, so his incumbency was also always going to be a plus. Just look at how he shamelessly used the White House and Air Force One, etc. in the election campaign itself, and you can certainly see how he parlayed that incumbency. You know, in that sense, he was always going to, I think, be in a better position than he was going into 2016. And two, it's possible that many of those who voted for him in 2020 had been non-participants in 2016, given that a Clinton win was widely expected. So... The, the debate about whether he sort of truly expanded his base, I think, you know, will will be had and uh, those numbers will have to be uh, broken down, disaggregated, and some judgments will be made about that. But um, I think uh, we can say that uh, in any event, right, it doesn't matter how you get there, it's who, who, whether you get enough votes, and he didn't get enough votes, and he certainly didn't get them in the right places. And besides, Joseph P. Biden got more, perhaps five million more votes, and the best thing Biden had going for him, as well as decency and respect was the disgust, betrayal and embarrassment many Americans felt for the 45th president. 
It was true that democracy was on the ballot. It's also true to say that Trump was on both ballots too, in a sense, in that Biden was a, a vote for Biden was in fact very much a vote against Trump and Trumpism. Hence my point that no president has learned less on the job nor done more to expand his opponent's electoral base. Now, with those comments, let's bring in our panel who know a lot, lot more about these things than I do. First, as always, Dr. Maria Tuflaga is a lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations and heads up the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Welcome again, Maria, as always. Hello, and uh, some fun facts about Donald Trump. Uh, he is the only president to have been impeached, to have lost the popular vote, and to be a one-term president. So that's a, that's a, that's a pretty devastating centre of a Venn diagram there for someone who, <laughs> who does not like being on the wrong side of history. No, he doesn't. In fact, as far as he's concerned, he still isn't on the wrong side of history. I guess we'll come to that. Dr. Charles Miller, or Charlie, I believe we call you. Yep, that's fine. Um, yep, Charlie. He's also a political scientist based at the School of Politics and International Relations, and you specialise in uh, defence and security mm. issues. Yep, that's Ch right. Yep, foreign policy, broadly conceived as well. Yep. Excellent. Welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Jennifer Hunt is a researcher at the ANU's uh, National Security College, based here in the same building as we're uh, producing this podcast out of. And you may have seen uh, her excellent commentary on Election Day on the ABC, sitting on the panel there and providing extremely expert opinion, rich content. Jennifer, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you and hello. Now, let's get down to it. Uh, let's get some, so, some sort of perspectives from you, because when you were talking on, uh, on, on the ABC the, on, on Election Day, on that Wednesday... Things were very, very unclear, and they stayed unclear for a great deal of time. They stayed heavily contested. The networks, who we now know, uh, you know, I, I guess we've had all been schooled in this in, in recent days, um, were very cautious, really, uh, about uh, how to read the numbers. They've now made the call. It's very clear who's won the election. Donald Trump still doesn't believe it, of course. Well, that's true. But Donald Trump still believes that he won the popular vote in 2016 as well. And so... had the biggest inauguration <laughs> um, at, you know, audience as well. Exactly. So he has made a name and a political career uh, in peddling conspiracy theories, and he will probably end it on one as well about voter fraud. Did you see um, the rally addressed by, well, if you could call it that, um, the event addressed by... Donald Jr., where he talked about the Republican Party and uh, and said that the Republican Party of old would have just, you know, effectively said that you know, would have laid down and accepted this, but the Republican Party now has a backbone, and we're going to fight and continue to fight. What did what do you, what do you make of that kind of statement? Well, I mean, is he shaping up for for twenty twenty four himself? Well, to me, it just demonstrates the hostile takeover of the Republican Party by the Trump family themselves. The fact that we even have the president's son out there with a platform, his children getting security clearances, uh, becoming White House officials, but then demurring any hard questions as well. I can't answer any questions about dad. So I think the fact that he is the front man demonstrates uh, that the Trump family is front and center. And we'll be using that to launch their own campaigns in future. What do you think, what does anyone think about my proposition that uh, Trump hasn't particularly expanded his base? I'd like to think that that's true. Um, but there's, there's certainly some indication from the pre-election polling and from the exit polling that he may have done somewhat better amongst African-American and Latino men. Mm. Um, now, because the election, that the exit polling was basically people were voting on the day, I'm not really sure how much we can actually trust that. So we'll yeah. have to wait for a while, but it's possible that that has happened. Um, and that's, I mean, let's, let's put it, <laughs> to 
put it mildly surprising that this has happened, but it may indeed um, may indeed be the case. And what's shocking, I mean, I, I think really is the fact that he hasn't lost more support ultimately. I mean, if you look, you know, he's talking. Don Jr. is talking about the Republican Party of old. I mean, in American politics, in the what you know, the the, the maybe the sixties or the seventies, when you still could have massive blowout landslide elections, somebody who had mishandled. Um, something like the coronavirus as badly as Donald Trump has, he would have been lucky to carry more than two or three states. So, I mean, the fact that he hasn't, that that has not happened is, I mean, a pretty incredible testament to the power of partisanship, especially in um, um, the Republican-supporting um, red state portion of America. Maria, how much do you put that down? I mean, it's a really good point. And how much do you put that down to... Um you know, to media, to the segregated media, or the the, the sort of um, media that now operates to a, to a, to a various niche conspiracies. America is obviously intensely kind of divided, as as we know, and uh, we have media that are very partisan media operators, that are extremely partisan, um, and they're sort of uh, you know barrackers for one side or the other, and clearly that's had this. I mean, it's a it's a complex relationship, you know, which came first, but uh, it's it's had a intensifying effect on on the political process. Um, sure, I th- I think the media definitely has a, a big role to play in how people are getting their information um, in the United States. Uh, but the, we could sort of say a similar thing about any democracy at the moment, uh, perhaps not to the same extreme. Um, I think one of the things that sort of struck me was the sort of data visualizations that came out about um, voting patterns uh, across the United States. And, um, you know, we often conceive of things as sort of red states or blue states. But what sort of struck me was, um, for example, the big difference between cities Mm. and rural localities, which sort of goes to um, a big divide in American politics between people who do live in big city centres and people who feel left behind in sort of smaller uh, rural uh, communities, sort of building on what Charlie said. I mean, I think I, I saw reports that uh, counties that had very high death rates from coronavirus actually increased Trump's vote share, which I just find that very difficult to uh, compute, like how the hell can that possibly be? And I do sort of wonder, like, how how much of it is it really possible for us to sort of understand from this from this distance the type of polarization that has kind of gone on in the United States? Well, doesn't that just prove a kind of mm. like prima facie a deep polarization that that it's so mm. deep, in fact, mm. that the coronavirus itself has become a political a matter of political contest. Even when yeah. people are dying mm. in a relatively small community, yeah, yeah, uh, this has become some, you know, the China virus or or the overreaction to it, mask wearing, all of those things. It's very much a symptom of a kind of a toxically intensified partisan polity. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess sort of why I would be a bit pessimistic about saying that now that Biden's been elected, that everything is going to be fine. And I, I mean, I, th- I think it's actually. That? Uh, I, I think people who are celebrating probably wish this, <laughs> yeah, even if right. they know that it's probably not true. But I guess that's the sort of the, the, the point I'm trying to make here. I think it's this is actually bigger than just mm. how people get information mm. from the media. Like these are these are deep and systemic social cleavages which the American political system 
seems to be incapable of being able to resolve for several institutional factors and also just the structure of their party system means they can't aggregate interests in a way that is kind of coherent. The fact that the voting system pushes polarisation rather than, um, you know, forces in Australia which push towards the median voter um, and the fact that I think this is the thing that I found really strange about the some of the coverage around this is just like why aren't they talking about voter suppression more? You know, like we had a record turnout somewhere between 68 and 72%. But how many people didn't vote because ultimately they couldn't or were denied? Yep. I, I think that's really important. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. So I wrote a, a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald that came out the eve of uh, Election Day talking about the, the three trends were demographic shifts, so millennials, uh, disinformation, and disenfranchisement. This is only the second presidential election without the protections of the Voting Rights, Voting, Voting Rights Act of 1965. That was dismantled in 2013. And I meant that states could uh, change polling places around. They could take people off the rolls. And we saw that in Georgia. One of the closest contested states of this election was also very close in 2018 for the governor's race. That's when the Secretary of State of Georgia was running for the office of governor. So in, in effect, he was in charge of his own election. This is a state which in only one of the five states in which you vote on machine, there's no paper ballot or backup. And he won by 1.4% of the vote and then promptly took the lobbyist for the voting machine company to be his chief of staff. So when we look at some of the long-standing trends that were happening, <laughs> some of the long-standing <laughs> trends that are happening in Georgia, um, I think we can definitely see the effects of demographic shifts, right? Mm-hmm. There was a huge youth turnout in a lot of these states that flipped. Um, disinformation that we still see coming from the White House. But I think as an Aust- in Australia, it's hard for us to imagine the information ecosystem in which Americans live. If you're watching Fox News, you believe things like that the U.S. stands alone against the tyranny of the metric system. That was a real segment <laughs> on primetime oh, Britain's Fox. with them. You know, Brexit <laughs> Britain has got their back on this one. Their economy is doing yeah. so great. To say nothing of COVID disinformation. So <laughs> there have been several studies that have tracked how people respond to the pandemic directly to who they were listening to. And specific mm. shows like Hannity, like Rush Limbaugh, who called people who wear masks freaks um, and said that people need to adapt like the Donner Party did. You know, that's the one that resulted in cannibalism. So (laughs) if you're in this ecosystem, you are essentially in an alternative reality in which this vote result was preordained. Remember, Trump was telling everyone that there would be no God without him. And if you have captured that audience, that's right, if you've captured that audience, um, then they believe that this has been stolen from them and they are being incited to violence by the only person who personally benefits from remaining without uh, remaining in legal immunity from prosecution. Well, let's Jeez. come back in a minute to that issue of the potential for violence because there, there was sort of a lot of talk about it and a lot of cities were, were inner cities were boarded up and so forth. But just can we go back to the Voting Rights Act for a moment? You said it was uh, dismantled in 2013. Just take us through, uh, sure. take an Australian through what that is. Sure. So was. this was uh, an act passed in 1965, um, looking straight at those southern states with Jim Crow laws, and it meant that when states who were in charge of their own elections when they wanted to make changes that had to be pre-cleared before the courts first. So I'll give you an example. In North Carolina, um, they did a study on how people vote. Now, that in itself is fine. 
But then they systematically went through and removed the things that African Americans used to vote. So early voting was cut in half. Same-day registration eliminated. Sunday voting gone. This is the difference between having the Voting Rights Act and not having it. Now, when they were called up to court about this, the court agreed that it happened with surgical precision to eliminate some of, to disenfranchise some of these voters. And I remember one of the GOP spokesmen came on and said, no, it's not because they're African-American. It's because they vote Democrat. So they see this (laughs) as, they see this as a legitimate now, without the restraints of the Voting Rights Act, what's happened is that states make these changes. So, for instance, in North Carolina, they went from, in one county, 12 polling places to one, between one election and the next. So these long lines, some of these long queues are a function of design, right? Not they're, overwhelming they're voter turnout. They're COVID, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so those are, the, those are the changes that happen on the ground. Remember, voting is happening mm. on a weekday. Mm. And while employers do have to give you the time off, they don't have to pay you. Mm. And it's just a very different system without yeah. compulsory voting. And those changes made a difference in some of the key states that we saw in 2016. North Carolina, for one, right? Mm. When I went to Obama in 2008. So. But the in 2012, we still had the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, 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 good point. But I, I do take your point. North Carolina is something of a bellwether, and mm. I don't say that just because I am from North Carolina. Mm. Uh, it was one of only two states to swing mm. away from mm. Obama. In 2012, mm. the other was Indiana. So mm. it's one of the states that uh, I carefully watch to mm. see you know, if they're mm. behaving. Um, <laughs> but also for these very tight margins, which tell us trends that might be in action. And it, they will, they're one of the last states to call it, of course. So this is why we're still waiting for North mm. Carolina. They're accepting ballots until November 12th, as long as they're mm. postmarked by Election Day, to allow overseas voters, military voters, to get mm. those ballots in. Oh, I'm sure that, uh, that Donald's very uh, relaxed about that. Um, <laughs> Maria, you made a, a, a really good point about you know the various ways in which in Australia we have um, we've set the system up, the rules up of our of our political system, the structure of it to uh, draw in effect the the, the middle, uh, you know, to, to really preference the middle, you know, the, the majority of Australian voters. And you're talking about things like compulsory voting and preferential voting. One of the things that struck me, which uh, was uh, watching some of the you know the mad ravings of various. Republicans and I think Rudy Giuliani is among the maddest <laughs> that I that I saw over uh, recent days. But you know, complaining about uh, how in some of these states, these Democratic states, they'll make an application and it will go before a democratically appointed judge, mm. and therefore they won't get anywhere with it. And it struck me, as I guess it struck strikes Australians all the time, that isn't this what's wrong? Like right, the the, the politicisation of the very judiciary is, I mean, it's a fundamentally different system from the one we have. We're talking so much at the moment about the potential, at least, for the Supreme Court to be making decisions about this election, right up, right up to, at least in Trump's frame of reference, who won the election. Mm. A, a court that he only got through stacking about eight, you know, eight or ten days before the election. Mm. After 60 million people had already voted. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. it, 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 it's just staggering that we... I mean, you raised this point the other yeah, day, yeah, yeah. you know, is the US a democracy? And there's a whole range of ways in which that question, it's I think, legitimate. Is, yeah. is, is a live question. I yeah. thought it was remarkable that Rudy Giuliani was um, pouring scorn upon the networks for calling the um, election result and, um, and declared that the actual party that decides election outcomes was the courts. And <laughs> I don't know, I, I always remember from my, like, you know, textbooks, it was like the voters. This I, don't know. Know. <laughs> I believe they have a role in that somewhere. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah. somewhere. Um, but your point about the courts is really interesting. And, and a colleague of ours, um, Zoe Robinson, mm. who, who does judicial politics, uh, specialising in, in the United States and, and Australia, but she sort of um, was explaining to us that um, it's not only that uh, Trump has stacked the Supreme Court, which is obviously very important, but that he's actually appointed 25% of federal court judges in his term. And part of that was because the Republican-dominated Senate obstructed the Obama administration's capacity to dominate, to um, to appoint these judges, um, you know. And so this this will have really long-term effects on uh, court rulings like decades into the future and obviously also provide um, a pool of future uh, candidates for the Supreme Court. So, um and I think that it has been really interesting to hear, hear multiple Republican pundits constantly invoking the courts as where elections are decided, which to me is mm. disturbing. Mm. Indeed. And remember, several of those appointees to judicial appointments uh, were rated not qualified by the American Bar Association. And some of the questioning in the Senate was almost comical. Uh, have you ever argued a case? No. Have you ever Jeez. filed a motion? No. Have you ever watched night court? I mean, <laughs> at what Judy point does it become a farce? And we know exactly why the last two justices Jag. were appointed. Um, they had never argued a case, yeah. and they were both part of the Florida recount mm. on the Republican team in 2000. So it's clear that he had very clear intentions about what he intended them to do. And it's also a point about the Senate under Mitch McConnell, which may continue. We're still not sure. It's up in the air. Obstruction of more than 500 bills passed by the Democratic House, most of them on a bipartisan basis, and a prioritization of these judicial appointments above all else. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because when people think about an authoritarian or a non-democratic regime, I think a lot of the time we imagine that there's going to be, you know, black jackbooted stormtroopers goose-stepping down Pennsylvania Avenue under the banner of a swastika, right? But the fact is that a lot of authoritarians nowadays don't do things like that. They are much, much more subtle. So um, just been reading a book by uh, Hannah Lucinda Smith called Erdogan Rising, which is about the rise to power of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. And he is very much a model for somebody like Donald Trump. So he doesn't have – so he has a, a sort of fanatical base of highly religious – um, party supporters from the sort of rural heartland of Turkey that he opposes um, to the metropolitan elites of Istanbul and so on and so forth. Um, and the way that he operates is not by assassinating his rivals. Um, it's not by, um, you know, having jackbooted thugs going around smashing windows. Um, it's by using the courts to a large degree. So it's about basically um, putting um, uh, putting people in jail um, for various um, offences that they may have um, committed um, against against him or criticizing him and so on. Um, and it's also about getting control of the judiciary as well um, from people who might oppose him. So he purged the judiciary of supporters of this this fellow, Galen, who was a former um, former ally of his, and then put in his own loyalists who are then um, ruling on things like, for example, elections, right? So um, they have elections, but there's um, very obvious fraud. But because, of course, he's stacked the courts, he's been able to been able to sort of get around it. So, so modern authoritarians are much, much smarter and much more subtle 
than the old kind of Hitler Mussolini model of doing things. So when you hear people saying, oh, it's such ridiculous hyperbole to say that Trump is trying to take, uh, Trump and the Republicans are trying to make the United States a non-democratic country, you know, where are the jackboots? Well, no, that's not what it would actually look like. It would look like something much, much subtler than that. It's very well said. And I might just say, it sounds like you're reading a piece that I wrote last week. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I agree. And I was sort of citing the, the Godwin's law problem, mm. you know, mm. that as soon as you mention Hitler, you've lost the argument. Yeah. Mm. And and the trouble with that is that it's precluded mm. that kind of uh, yeah. comparison that you're just making, that mm. modern mm. fascism or authoritarianism, authoritarianism mm isn't going to look like it looked in the middle of the 20th yeah. century. It's going to look different. And yeah. That's right. This operates. one looks like attacking the post office, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the newest iteration yeah. is using <laughs> innovative tools like sabotaging right. the post office. Uh, in court, the newest Trump appointee admitted that he had dismantled and destroyed 700 mail sorting machines on you know in the months leading up to the election. Each one of those machines sorts 26,000 pieces of mail an hour. So if we're mm. wondering about why ballots were slow to arrive, why yeah. they're slow to coming back, some of that is also by design. Yeah, and this is a guy that's a former big donor to the Republican Party as well. Absolutely, and holds conflict of interest in competing, uh, you know, sort of parcel industries. Let's take a quick break and be back with this discussion in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before we uh, had a break, we were just talking about the politicisation of the judiciary and a number of other aspects. Social media has been really interesting uh, through this uh, through this period, and particularly in the last couple of days. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump has kind of built a, a presidency around his social media profile. He's used it extraordinarily well. Chris Wallace was making the point on this podcast, I think, makes the point in her book, How to Win an Election, that um, Trump descri- described Twitter as, uh, you know, brilliant. It's like having your own newspaper, mm. but with none of the on costs. <laughs> uh, and he certainly used mm. it uh, and other social media to... Um, you know, to drive his uh, to drive his message and used it with with great effect. But of course, he's also extraordinarily embarrassing. Some of the stuff that he's been saying, particularly since the result came out, and you know, we were talking about Giuliani before. There's been some pretty wacky stuff going on uh, on the Republican side, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, like the um, the uh, recent event that they had. Uh, tell <laughs> us about the <laughs> good work. Nice segue. <laughs> <I like it. laughs> 
Well, I mean, this is this is this is a beauty. I remember watching it on. I think it was Saturday. All the days in the last week have kind of blurred into. Yeah, one, they, but, they you know, have. <laughs> Giuliani's giving this press conference, disputing the obviously disputing the the election results in uh, Pennsylvania, and he's standing in the back of you know just what looks like a kind of an industrial estate with a chemical hazard sign behind him with all these Trump Pence signs everywhere. It looks like you know for those of you who are listening in Canberra, it's like Fishwick basically, right? It's right. like one of those kind of places. Um, and he sort of talks about it for a while, and then after a while. Twitter started to catch up on it and they said, okay, well, where was this taking place? So Trump had originally said important press conference at 11 o'clock in Four Seasons Philadelphia. Now, Four Seasons Philadelphia is a, unlike Trump's hotels, is a high class um, urban downtown location where you would hold um, some kind of an important press conference. It's a hotel, right? right? But yeah, it's a hotel. Yeah, exactly. Half an hour later, he says it's Four Seasons Landscaping (laughs) Philadelphia. And then, you know, that's where Giuliani shows up. And then people start Googling it for Four Seasons Philadelphia. And the first thing that shows up is Four Seasons Landscaping. And then you look at the Google Street View and they zoomed round. And in fact, what you've got on the other side, directly opposite, you can do this yourselves at home if you're like. On the other side, directly opposite, there is a crematorium. Um, no symbolism there, of course. <laughs> um, and then right next to it, there is an adult bookstore. Again, no symbolism there. So what most likely <laughs> seems to have happened, and the Trump campaign are trying to deny this and say there's some other reason and that there was, you know, to, um, but but what most likely happened was they had some kind of a staffer who's, who was told, book the Four Seasons in Philadelphia, Google Four Seasons. The first thing that comes up is Four Seasons Landscaping, doesn't notice it, gives them a call, and then Four Seasons Landscaping are like, sure, And, yeah, and kudos fine. to the guy who answered, yeah. or gal who was working reception that day I and know. just rolled with it. That person wins the election, right? I mean, that's yeah. really and they've just uh, yeah. done a press com- a press release <laughs> to say, listen, if any presidential candidate had called, yeah. we would be more than happy to host yeah, that yeah, event. Exactly. But don't worry, we'll have merchandise up by Monday. That's so right. I'm really hoping that they have a lawn and order. Yeah. Lawn, lawn and order, that's good. <laughs> T-shirt, I'll be buying it. You know, it, follow them on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there were, and there was a fair bit of uh, jocularity about this. People were taking great delight in it. I saw one uh, because it was between, as you say, a, a crematorium and a shop that sold dildos. Um, <laughs> and uh, the uh, person said fire. that uh, Trump was caught between a, a cock and a chard place. <laughs> 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 Oh yes, <laughs> but, but, it, but it is it is a metaphor, right? Of yes. the the mismanagement, the incompetence, but still yeah. going ahead, right? I know, yeah. yeah. Just push on, uh, like it'd yeah. be easier rather than just you know like saying sorry, we're changing it to a different location. I mean, I'm sure. So their their excuse was that they wanted like there would be too many pro Biden protesters if they held it at the downtown Four Seasons in Philadelphia, and um, so they moved it to there. But then why did they have to move it to another place called the Four Seasons? Couldn't yeah. they just find another hotel, maybe the airport or you know, a golf club out of town. Like, yeah. Know, it just doesn't that it is blatantly the funny thing is what happened. You and know? they I, could have <laughs> so easily salvaged it. Any political strategist would have retorted with, well of course the elites would expect us <laughs> yeah. to show up in a high class hotel, but we're here with a small to medium enterprise supporting local business. That's what Corey mm. Lewandowski did actually say. He said many good patriotic Americans use um, four Seasons Landscaping Philadelphia for all their gardening needs. We are proud to support. It's something along those lines. You know? <laughs> yeah. Too late. Right. Duck into the adult bookstore. Yeah. No, many patriotic yeah. Americans use, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, their campaign's gone to mulch. That's the best you can say about it. Um, but, but, we're in, but we're in this now, this legal twilight zone, right? We've got all these um, 
threats of legal action and uh, applications, claims of voter fraud and malfeasance and incompetence and everything else. Where's all this going to end? I mean, from what we understand, a good many of these things are going to be regarded as frivolous. Hmm. So far, they're zero in 10. Right. So if the, you're, the best if they've done out of it is a uh, an order from a court to make sure there are scrutinies from both sides watching the count, right? Which already happens, and, and most of these countings are happening on, on live stream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this charge that there aren't electioneers is just frivolous. Now, I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, if you're charging fraud in front of a court, they require this thing we used to call evidence. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it used to be really big. Exactly, uh, <laughs> about what kind of fraud, who, where mm. perpetrated, mm. through what means. Mm. And if those conditions of evidentiary support aren't met, then they can invoke Rule 11, which is sanctions for whoever's bringing this frivolous lawsuit. And, of course, you can see that Trump is already concerned about some of these court cases because he has been launching emails every hour mm. on the hour to mm. his supporters and half of the uh, half of whatever contributions that he might mm. bring in have been designated in the fine print on those same emails as going to his campaign fund. So he is, <laughs> uh, you know, facing penury in multiple avenues. Yeah. Well, tell us about that because he's um, he's made a comment at one point that he can actually pardon himself during this lame duck period, hasn't he? Yes, that was a very interesting discussion that he had, I believe, in 2018. Uh, about pardoning one's self. Uh, and in fact, I, I wouldn't be so hasty for merchandisers <laughs> to start printing out Biden 46 because he might be 47. Uh, if really? Trump would have, you know, is to step down and Pence would take over as number 46, mm. perhaps to pardon him. But keeping in mind. So that let's Trump- just, just to be clear about yeah. that, because it took me a moment to understand what you were saying. But it must be the but- accent. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my lack of intelligence, actually. Um, so what you're saying is that he could, they could actually do a switcheroo uh, in this lame duck mm. period, uh, and uh, at that point, by, uh, um, Pence could say, you know, you're you're absolved of any. That's right, crimes. just like Ford pardoned Nixon when Nixon resigned. Yeah, and so another great moment. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> so, and the dangers of not prosecuting uh, office holders who think they are above the law. Super. And that doesn't get him free of uh, state prosecutions mm. for uh, various things, does it? Exactly, which is why Michael Steele, who was the former chair of the Republican mm. National Committee, tweeted out straight away in responses uh, to Trump's false claims to have won. Uh, he tagged in the New York Attorney General and said, you know, SDNY, he's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pence is the Admiral Donuts for Donald Trump. <laughs> Though I wonder if why Pence would agree to do that. Well, to be president just for a couple of days. You know? Like like donuts, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You know, he was only yeah, in charge for a couple of days I'm, and he had one job and that was it. But at least he got to do Well, Blackjack McEwen was prime minister of this country for 23 days and they're putting a statue up around the lake and they're spending $900,000 on it. Uh, I know I've changed eras and government. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just Maybe making a the point. Maybe a better comparison than that. What would you do to get into the history books, I ask? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not this. Not that. Pardon Donald I, Trump. That's exactly. all I did. Perhaps His little presidential biography. He pardoned exactly. Donald Trump. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps not join the GOP, which Trump himself yeah. only did, you know, not that long ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was an yeah, interesting yeah. point that I heard someone mm-hmm. making uh, over, over, you know, as you say, the long day that mm-hmm. ha- the long single day that has occurred since the uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> since absolutely, the they used to use that as a major deflection of any criticism. Well, he was a Democrat then, yeah, um, or he was a private citizen then, mm-hmm. which immediately morphed into well, he's a president now, yeah, so completely right. immune from criticism on all fronts. But isn't it staggering when you think about that? Because this Republican was making the point that he had no strong links in the Republican Party and certainly not in Washington um, when he 
secured the nomination, um, you know, by the time he had, in a relatively short time, he has entirely captured this party. A bit mm. like you know you were saying with Erdogan. I mean, yeah. the, the, it's it's been a very comprehensive mm. takeover mm. of of a party that used to be part of the system and is now mm. sort of likes to see itself as outside. The orthodoxy, but he did have the the base of the Tea Party movement, you know. So it's not like the, it's not like as if the Republican Party was in fine health before um, Trump came along. And it will be actually very interesting to sort of see what the sort of I guess institutional legacy of Trumpism yeah. within the Republican mm. um, Party is. It's been interesting to sort of see, I guess, the establishment uh, distance themselves from him and yeah. and emphasise, I suppose, the sort of, um, you know, counting the legal votes kind of dimension mm. um, of the whole show, which, you know, I guess as an Australian, again, like the whole idea of like having time limits on when the ballots can come in, it's just, just odd. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, there's a the congressional scholar Norm Ornstein has very strong words to say about the Republican Party, having studied them for 40 years. And he calls it asymmetric polarization. Yeah. Um, that is the Republican Party has drifted much farther to the right than the Democratic Party has drifted to the left. Mm. To the effect that they see, you know, t- on the Republican side, they are openly hostile to bipartisanship, openly hostile uh, to, you know, to the citizens and their voting and their and their franchise. And I think that Pew Research has some terrifying results on polarization in the United States that about 40 percent of both parties mm. see each other as the mm. main threat to the United States. Oh, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, um, I, th- I think there's a there's a, a couple of points coming out of this for um, really for, for the Democrats. And I mean, I know that a lot of so we've, we've spoken an awful lot about Donald Trump. We haven't said so much about Joe Biden. And I know a lot of people were very, very skeptical about Joe Biden when he started running for the Democratic nomination. There's even still people skeptical about him now. You know, lots and lots of the sort of Bernie bro types on Twitter saying, well, you know, um, it's a really um, anemic kind campaign and if it had been Bernie, you would have won on a landslide, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um but I think what this misses out is something that you you were alluding to, um, Jennifer, which was um the fact that the Democrats are a much more heterogeneous coalition than the Republicans are, which means that they're they they inevitably have to have somebody who's a little bit of everything. Somebody who has a little bit for the Democratic Socialists, a little bit for the sort of socially liberal tech types, a little bit for the socially liberal Wall Street types, a little bit for the sort of woke people. People, and a little bit for you know like religious church going African Americans who are kind of the backbone of the 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 the, um, the Democratic Party and, so and, and a little bit for working yeah oh, yeah Americans. yeah for like yeah exactly like for working the traditional Americans. base of the Democratic Party. yeah exactly yeah. like um, you know unionized um, white working class Americans so mm. um, the thing is that the, Demo- the the leader of the Democratic Party has to be rather than the sort of a champion of a tribe he has to be kind of like the leader of a coalition of people uh, he or she has to be the leader of a coalition of people. So if you have someone who's just kind of like a blue state champion, basically, blue states, um, loosely defined to mean people who are very strong partisan Democrats, um, then that, that's not really going to work, I don't think, for them in the same way as um, the same thing would work for the Republicans. Because although it might enthuse a lot of people in the Democrats' base, um, it's going to lose an awful lot of people who, um, in the other end of the Democratic Party, um, people who might not, you know, people might even move over to the Republicans. All of a sudden, well, is that possible? Is it possible to, you know, I'm, we can't throw ourselves mm. forward even three weeks mm. and know what Trump's going to do. But mm. let's just, for the sake of it, yeah. throw forward you know a decade. Mm. Uh, is it possible that this trend continues? Mm. And um, you know, 
that we end up with a party that is we end up with a, a bifurcation in the political mm. system where the Republicans are representing the regions mm. and rural Americans and mm. and the Democrats are, are are representing the urban areas. I mean, it's hard to see how that would work because of the electoral system itself, the way mm. it's divided, the way the electoral mm. college works, and everything else. Mm. But there's a there's, there are elements of that in this result. Now we can even mm. see it with with states that would be red states, except yeah. for the capital cities, you know, Philadelphia or whatever it might yeah. be, that are that you know that that, yeah. that that deliver it for the Democrats. Well, uh, um, is that tendency on on the move? I suppose is what I'm talking. Hard about. to say. This, I mean, you know, like um, ten years in advance, it's very very difficult to make. Okay, really make it nine. Just <laughs> make it nine. Okay, we'll make it easier. How about we just keep decreasing it in year sort of segments? But I, th- I think. I think that the Democrats, I mean, they, they do have a they do have a problem, a very difficult, tricky, um, tricky kind of balancing act to make. Because if they did decide to become an, a relatively ideologically homogenous social democratic party, if you like the American Labour Party, mm. so to speak, um, as you know, Bernie Sanders or AOC or whoever would want them to be, um, then um, perhaps they might be able to reach out a little bit more to the kind of Trump voting white working class people in Ohio or Pennsylvania. Um, and they also might be able to sort of get a real kind of hardcore cadre of people who would always show up and always campaign for them and always be pushing them to the left in the same way that you have these people on the right. But at the same time, there's a lot of people in the United States um, who I think are very, very influential, certainly very financially influential in terms of um, their um, campaign contributions and so on, who are um, economically um, very um, pro pro market while being socially very liberal, and these people have an out of uh, a very very strong influence on the Democratic Party. So if you look at again like the tech people, um, the um, the sort of um, Wall Street people as well, you know people who are like absolutely firmly in favour of gay marriage, um, firmly in favour of women's rights, um, firmly in favour of immigration, and so on. Um, and they might say, well, we wouldn't mind paying a little bit more taxes in order for everyone to have healthcare. But if push came to shove, and they're standing there in the ballot box, would they actually genuinely vote for that if that's what they were given? So the problem is, if the Democrats do move in this Bernie Sanders kind of way, then they've got this very important part of their base, certainly in terms of influence over um, public debate and in terms of campaign contributions and so on, who might just about be tempted by a slightly more sane and competent version of Donald Trump to come over to the Republicans. And this is not hard to imagine, is no. it? I mean, we see this in Australia. We yeah. see the Labor Party de- dealing with yeah. this, this you know, game of twister, as it were, sort of trying yeah. to cover these very the, the positions it needs to take. We saw what happened to Labor with its vote in Queensland, Maria, at the last election, and we know the, the you know the lengths that Labor's going to sort of be, you know, sort of assertive on climate change, but somehow speak to its uh, you know its base in 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 the you know up and down the east coast in the in the energy sector, yeah, absolutely, coal mining in particular. I mean, I think I think to sort of continue on sort of some of the things that that Charlie was saying, right? Um, you know, there's obviously when you're dealing with a really polarized polity and you've got your um, extreme party activists, like the issues that are motivating them are not the issues that are voting uh, motivating the median voter. The issues that vote, that motivate the median voter is economics. Like mm. we, we know this from decades of data. Mm. Um, you know, it can shift around sometimes. Uh, immigration can be another kind of cross-cutting cleavage and we see a lot of evidence of this in Australia, um, which is sort of delinked. linked um, 
traditional left-wing voters and put them onto the back of right-wing parties. But, you know, like if you, if you think about it in another way, um, lots of people who are unhappy with a candidate like Biden because he's boring are progressive. And uh, what does that word mean? It means being ahead of the curve. And so, um, you know, and they're basically opposed to people who are, who are reactionaries, who, who radically want to return to a, a bygone um, era. But most people are actually quite conservative. Like that's the reality of it. And I think that's one of the sort of problems, um, and you can see it a little bit here too in Australia because of the way our voting system works in the lower house, right? Whereas if you've got like progressive voters who are deeply dissatisfied with the sort of, you know, light uh, red politics of the Labor Party, for example, or the light blue politics of the Democratic Party, who then get angry at people for not being ahead of the curve with them, right? Mm. And that's just... Weird well, <laughs> when you break way, it down. Yeah. It is in a way, but it's also just uh, um, it, it's a surprise except when you think about it, you think, well, by definition, people who go to church are more religious. People who mm. uh, go to a political party and actually join it are more politically committed. Well, more sad, mad and lonely, right? Isn't that, the, <laughs> isn't that what people say, like party members say about themselves? Well, I think we're getting into another area of sociology. Well, I think, I think there's a tendency to have a postmortem for the Democratic Party, regardless of whether they win or whether, or whether they <laughs> yeah, lose. Yeah, yeah. And the, the facts are that, that Biden have, has won 75 million votes, the most votes of anyone in history. Um, this was a continuation of the 2018 midterms. And a quick glance at the picture of the incoming congressional class of the Republicans yeah. and the Democrats mm. show you which mm. one is more representative of America and which yeah. one is not. And at this point, the Republicans party, the Republican Party's idea of diversity is having two QAnon conspiracy theorists elected <laughs> to Congress. Oh, God. <laughs> While on the other side, what I th- see is more of a longstanding fracture is going to be the anti-science division, where they are openly mainstreaming conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and conspiracy theorists into high office in the Republican Party versus the incredible and increasing appeal on the Democratic side of scientists, physicians, nurses. That's what Mm -hmm. we saw in 2018, Mm -hmm. these non-traditional occupations running for office. And even former intelligence agents. Now, these are people who really (laughs) value their anonymity. But the fact that they've identified Trump Mm. and the Republican Party as a potential threat that they look at when they're studying other polities (laughs) and they felt they needed to step up, I think is more indicative of where these two parties are going. Even the military actually were, you know, from the poll, Military Times poll, suggests the first time, I I don't know when this has ever happened before in American politics, the military were breaking a majority of them for Biden. Yeah, I saw this too and I I noticed that some people were pointing out that perhaps they didn't like being called losers by the (laughs) commander-in-chief. Well, the fact is that he has uh, attacked every single branch separately. Yeah. (laughs) Even the even the Marines. Ooh, so, yeah. Well, they're part of the Navy. And remember, he oh, yeah. dismissed the naval captain who sounded the alarm about COVID on his yeah. ship. Yeah, when Lieutenant Colonel Vindman yeah. testified in mm. impeachment hearings, mm. the Army had to provide security for one of its own against yeah. Trump and his supporters and death threats. Um, and so, you know, he's attacked individual personnel. He's interfered in uh um, military courts of justice, and people see that meddling and are very concerned. It's why 781 national security officials yeah. signed a letter supporting Biden. Mm. Um, but I think what what happens in some of these discussions is mm. we're really just talking about the phenomenon that's pretty axiomatic for marketers, which is that uh, Republicans fall in line mm. behind their nominee. Mm. Democrats have to fall in love. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's about right. Now, just before we get to the end, let's let's look at the sort of uh, implications of a Biden presidency in terms of uh, say the national foreign policy and national security or international security implications. There's a lot of talk about uh, Biden reframing uh, the relationship with China, or, you know, at least reconfiguring it to some extent, taking some of the heat out of it. There's obviously the climate change issue, taking uh, America back into the the Paris Accord. Uh, what, what's your reading of uh, – is expectation management important here or will there be quite dramatic shifts? I mean, I think that what, what Biden is going to offer the rest of the world, which I think is the reason why pretty much every world leader is breathing an enormous sigh of relief with the exception of the Orbans and Bolsonaros and Kim Jong-uns, yeah. is the fact that he is um, going to offer a fairly predictable, stable US foreign policy. Now, I mean, people are talking, and I've had this question quite a lot about relations with China, and people talk like Trump is, you know, very heavily anti-China, um, you know, the most the more hawkish candidate on China. But, I mean, if you go back just a little bit yeah, through his relations yeah. with 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 Xi Jinping, the, the point is not so much that his, and I know people on the radio can't see this, um, it's not so much that his relations with China are right down there towards the negative end or right up there towards the positive. It's the fact that they fluctuate wildly between mm. the two. Mm. And that's what's dangerous about him in the international realm is the fact that he's simply so erratic and unpredictable and so based on his own personal feelings yes, towards the leader it's, of that country. Exactly. It's mercurial and yeah. not strategic, particularly. Yeah, it's not political strategic. and it's emotional. And it's scary because, Personal. you know, like one of the things that, that, that they say in international relations, one of the things that I teach my students, and if any of them are listening, you know, you'll see the, the, the application of this, is that unpredictability is a major cause of war. So say, for example, you have the United States um, and one of its allies is getting challenged by one of its adversaries. Say, I don't know, China and Japan, right? Now, um, if China knows that the United States will jump in on Japan's side, China is not going to challenge Japan. If Japan knows for sure that the United States is not going to jump in on their side, Japan's not uh, probably going to concede to China and let them have what they want. The danger is when maybe they come to opposite judgments about what the United States is going to do. Say China thinks, well, the United States will probably stay out because Trump said X, Y, and Z, nice things about Xi Jinping. And Japan thinks, well, the United States will probably help us because they said, Trump said X, Y, Z, bad things about China. So then they're coming to contrasting judgments about what the United States will do. And given that this is a major... Um, this this will be a major factor in what's going to happen in the war. Then they come to compo contrasting judgments about what's going to happen in the war, and that's when you get the war occurring. Okay, mm. if you look at Jeff Blaney, one of the um, great Australian historians, saying uncertainty is a major cause of war because in order for a war to happen, at least one of the sides has got to misjudge what's going to happen. Mm. And when the attitude of the United States, the number one global superpower, is unclear, that's when those kind of things are going to are, are going to start to kick off. So that was always my major concern. That for me was the biggest tail risk of um, Donald Trump in the international arena is that because he is so erratic and unpredictable, it is really, really difficult for either America's allies or adversaries to really know what's going to happen. And that's the scariest, that was the, in the, in the domestic realm, the scariest thing was this move towards quasi-authoritarianism a la Erdogan or Orban. In the international realm, it is this mercurial unpredictability about him that was the that was the real problem. And do you think that's going to now, like Biden's going to steer back towards a more orthodox and more predictable position? Will that manifest in um, 
a clearly more sort of multilateralist approach as well? Will he uh, rebuild relations with the European continent, for example? Yes. Um, Yes, Get back into Paris. Um, yes. Rejoin the WHO. Yeah, yeah rejoin yeah. the WHO, right, yeah, yeah, which yeah. became enemy number one or enemy number two behind, right. behind There was even China. talk that Trump might have, um, might have pulled the United States out of NATO if he'd won a second term. Now, I mean, that would have been... Well, huge. and Fox News was on the job, let me tell you. So really? if I'm looking at uh, Hannity's You've show... a lot of it. He's you. put... Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, you know, if I want to have a conversation with my with my dad, I have to watch Rush Limbaugh and, uh, and Fox to know where the talking points are coming from so I can debunk, <laughs> debunk in advance. Yeah. So yeah. on Sean Hannity's show, uh, a couple of years ago when, uh, when Trump refused to commit to Article 5 of mutual defense, uh, he, Hannity put up this figure of U.S. contributions to NATO. Mm. Now, that number was astronomical. Mm. It was $720 billion a year. Uh. Now, anyone in the defense space listening knows that that is not the contribution to NATO, which is closer to $500 million. That is the entirety of the U.S. defense, defense budget. budget yeah. Yeah. But by presenting that large number, it feeds into Near that enough, siege you know, mentality. It, <laughs> it feeds into that billion, siege yeah. mentality that, look, we're being taken advantage of. Look at all this money we send overseas and, over, you know, we offshore when we have here needs at home yeah, that yeah. need to be met. Mm. But I think I think the capriciousness is important to note. Mm. The only uh, stability in mm. Trump's decision making mm. was whether it would impact his portfolio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we saw that with mm. the Muslim ban. His yeah. first executive order, yeah. his first week in office after he had declared his, his first order was to declare his inauguration the day of patriotic devotion. <laughs> uh, the second thing was to file for re-election. The third <laughs> uh, was actually this Muslim ban. And notice that that excluded all countries in yeah, which he did business. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas Biden mm. has specifically uh, and upheld this mm. promise the entirety of his political career not to own a single stock. And I think this is sort of what you guys are saying kind of underlines the the, the point about uh, Trump. You know, not only was he erratic and mercurial and, um, you know, often driven by his own kind of personal um, vanity, um, but, you know, he, he has a t- he has attacked uh, American institutions across the board at every single level. Like that is one of the reasons why the coronavirus pandemic has um, gone out of control because he literally like stripped uh, people with expertise out of those decision-making uh, mechanisms. And Biden is inheriting um, a bit of a smoldering uh, dumpster fire, right, <laughs> with with yeah. like a, a, a pandemic where, um, you know, the America just broke uh, a record number of infections uh, again today, beating yesterday, which was a record-breaking day, beating the day before, which was a, a record-beating day. There's 10 million infections in that country. Um, there is only so many things that can be repaired in four years' time particularly when you are facing an obstructionist Senate and a political system in general that mm. has too many veto players. And I think I think this is this is the sort of alarming kind of thing. Like how much how much um, how much damage has have American institutions sort of sustained? Like well we will get to know that in the next four to eight years. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that, it's an allied question to it. How much damage have those institutions sustained? And to what extent, let's even assume that Trump himself moves off the stage somehow, some you know. Uh, to what extent will political players sort of take instruction from the successful aspect of his approach, that is simply declaring black is white or whatever. I mean, that, that uh, example you gave of, of the US contribution to NATO, for example, or we've seen it since the election, the, the claims about, um, you know, big, big parcels of votes suddenly arriving at 4am in the morning. What we see here is a similar mechanism, which is you get a big lie out there 
to your supporters. And then it becomes this truth that they carry around in their hearts that they, they go to the streets, they rally. This is proof that they, you know, they are being dudded. It's, you know, it's sort of victim politics, conspiracy and all that sort of stuff, grievance politics. This is the worry is that he could end up being a sort of a John the Baptist figure for an even worse authoritarian because he may be the John the Baptist figure for an authoritarian um, Republican Party candidate who is just that little bit less vulgar, just that little bit less erratic, just that little bit less corrupt, a little bit less incompetent, yeah. but also has um, the same kind of authoritarian tendencies, personalistic leadership style. Again, if you look at these other populist leaders, your Erdogan, Orban, mm. Bolsonaro to some extent. Well, see, Erdogan comes along initially as a moderate and yeah, as, as right. with strong secular credentials. Yeah, and puts and the longer, well. Yeah, and the longer he stays there, the, and Orban is a great example as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, Madeleine Albright, you know, used to talk about Orban in very, very favourable terms. She, yeah. she knew him when he studied in America and, and, and he becomes, you know, this, this strong man. Yeah, or Netanyahu, so, also Netanyahu is very, yeah. you know. Yeah, they love. Yeah. 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 Well, well, this is it. So, you know, like um, the vulnerability, Trump has identified these vulnerabilities and he was too incompetent to take advantage of them. But somebody who is more competent, however, who has a very similar worldview, um, that person could be genuinely very dangerous yeah. for the United States. Yeah, I agree. Someone who can actually learn on the job because that, that yeah. seems to me to be the most spectacular single failure of Trump. Mm is his sort of stubborn unwillingness. He's lazy as hell for a start. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that when the result was finally declared, he was playing golf, you know, it sort of said everything. You know? <laughs> On the back uh, nine. And I remember <laughs> I remember last year this was demonstrated in, you know, emergency services very clearly where he had received or read information about a hurricane path, which he stuck to regardless of where yes. that hurricane ended up yeah. going. And so in the White House, mm. he decides to print off this meteorological map and <laughs> use a Sharpie to change yeah. the route of this hurricane to match his outdated information. Then they sold that Sharpie on his website for 15 bucks autographed with setting the record straight. <laughs> and, so and they're profiting the thing, right? He never wanted straight. to be a politician. He just wants to sell stuff. And the, the person Charlie's talking about actually wants to do yeah. the job. <laughs> right. And that's the scary thing. Well, I used to think that about Marco Rubio. I actually originally thought when Donald Trump was going beating Marco Rubio for the Republican, I was actually quite glad because I thought, first of all, he's never going to win. And secondly, at least he's not as belligerent mm. um, in international affairs as Marco Rubio is. Now, maybe it's not him. Maybe he has more respect for the democratic process. But somebody like that, somebody who's a little bit more polished, a little bit more competent, but has the same authoritarian tendencies. The same. So this guy, uh, actually, he's in North Carolina, but, um, Madison Crawthorn, did you see him? I did. I mentioned him on the project the other day. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you tell us a bit more? Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, this candidate is a millennial. He's very young. He's 29. Um, he has an LLC, but not much other job experience. He lied about getting into the military and then getting into well, a car accident. That's a prerequisite accident. for high Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, lied about uh, getting into the military uh, before being paralyzed in a car accident. And then it came to uh, some very unfortunate old Instagram photos of him, you know, waxing pure uh, poetic about the furhor in, you know, in... in <laughs> the, yeah. Exactly. In Eagle's Nest, yeah. um, you know, Hitler's vacation house. He Stylish. won his seat in North Carolina. Looking at you, North Carolina. <laughs> and the first thing he tweeted was, cry more lib. Yeah. So this is the group 
that they're really appealing to these grievance. They're sore mm. winners. They're sore losers. It's, it's actually even worse with him, actually. Some, so you, you know what his LLC is called? It's called SPQR. Now, SPQR from Rome. SPQR, Senatus Populesque Romanus, which was supposedly. Well, I knew that, obviously. Sorry, I just thought I dropped some Latin to be a smart ass, right? (laughs) But um, it it was supposedly on the standards carried by the Roman legions, which, I mean, seems like an obscure reference. But on the alt right, it's a kind of a coded thing for the alt right groups who use SPQR as their kind of calling card, if you like. That's one of the symbols that they use. And if you weren't in the alt-right or clued up about them, you wouldn't get the reference. That's the thing. It's a, it's a very, very subtle dog whistle. Mm. SPQR LLC. And there was something else um, Something else about So he's, he's, he's going to Berchtesgaden and posting these things about it's so great to be in Hitler's, you know, former kind yeah. of place and all that. And um, there was there was also something like there's the, the the number eighteen has a particular kind of significance in these kind of all right circles because um, the first letter of the alphabet is A. Sorry, it's eighty eight. Uh, what's that? It's eighty eight. Eighty eight is it? Not eighteen. Not eighteen. Don't right? ask me why I know this. Oh, eighty eight. Yeah, because yeah. Hitler. Hitler. Yeah, yeah. But there's, yeah, yeah. there's also eighteen as well. Oh, can, I thought yeah, it was fourteen with a fourteen word. A H. So there's like oh, there's um, very numerical. Oh, right, they, they are. But it's again, it's a code that they use. And there's certain things about his website that people say, and that could be a coincidence. But he always has eighteen. It's something like he always has eighteen posts or eighteen. Like there seems to be the use of the number eighteen a lot. Which I mean, again, sounds like really kind of crazy paranoid stuff. But it's just you know, it's yeah. the kind of thing you can plausibly deny. And then there's another. Another one, um, what was it? What was he did? Oh, yeah, like, so on his campaign website, he said, um, oh, yeah, this, you know, my, my, my opponent has um, has a track record of going away to work for non-white men like Cory Booker, right? So that's not even a dog whistle. That's straight up racism. So, I mean, somebody like him, and he looks like, I mean, like, honestly, he, he looks like a young up-and-coming SS Panzer commander, <laughs> <laughs> right? So you think about... Guy, you know, maybe somebody like him in a few years' time, right? Who's a lot more subtle and a lot cleverer about the way that he says it. Maybe again, it's not him, but somebody like him who then notes the vulnerabilities that Trump has been able to exploit. That's scary. Yeah, my money's on Ivanka. <laughs> because yes. then they can play the feminist card. Well, obviously, if yeah. you don't support yeah. her, she seems to be the conscience. least insane of them. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, maybe I'm just clutching at straws. <laughs> don't fall for Look, it. We, we, yeah, don't fall for it. Uh, thanks so much for this discussion. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, I guess I'm, I'm a lot happier to be saying it in the in the lee <laughs> of a uh, the end of the Trump period than its continuation. Yeah. Because as I think we've all agreed, you think the first term was mad. Imagine what a second term when you didn't have to seek re-election would have been like. Um, so, Drs. Maria Treflaga, Jennifer Hunt and Charlie Miller, thanks for being on Democracy Sausage and we'll be back again later in the week. Thank you. Thank Bye. You.